I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, happy new year to you, Danny, and to everyone out there. Happy New Year. Everyone out there in the dark. I hope you're hope you're well. How was your How was your break, Danny? Did you have a nice Christmas and New Year? Very nice Christmas. Did you nice watch year. films over that period? Not as many as you'd think. No, it's the time of the year. You went sat in front that. of the box, ignoring your family. No, just mainly uh, slept, ate, read a read a book. But what well, book did you read? I just finished uh, this Dashiell Hammett book called The Glass Key. Glass key, huh? Glass key, yeah. <laughs> I bought it three years ago from the famous the Shakespeare and Company, the Royal Royal, Royal Shakespeare. Yeah, oh, what's it called? Yeah, Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Yeah, yeah where well, yeah. my parents met. Well, your parents met. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I knew this book had been in the presence of your family. Yeah, <laughs> a great romance. Yeah. yeah, it was probably there in the eponymous meeting. Very dusty copy, was it? Very dusty, <laughs> and it just had your dad's thing marks all over it. Yeah, I could tell he'd been he'd been near this book. That's very good. I'll lend it to you if you want. It's very pacey. A lot of murders in it. Not not so gripping and pacey that you read it all in one go, though. <laughs> Still took reading, you three I, years to I read it like off. half it, like on the Eurostar back, and then I just forgot about it for many years, and I picked it up again. Danny, what is this uh, podcast? I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you asked. So for those uh, who have never listened to us before, let me just give you a brief summation. So Film Chat is a podcast all about Sam Foster. He's a CIA spy turned restaurateur. He was called out of retirement by the CIA director, Danny Moran, to save the world from an evil vegetarian called Katie Rogers, who brainwashes animals to kill people. In his quest to follow her dastly plan, Sam gets involved in a lot of humorous and action-backed sequences in a variety of locations, but it all culminates with him infiltrating Katie's headquarters, fending off the vegetarians with magic meat he's received from a gypsy, freeing the captive animals and flooding the base using Alka-Seltzer. He escapes by riding an ostrich across the roof before the unlikely steed flies him to the ground. That's what I would be saying. This is a adaptation of the film Leonard Part 6. However, this is just a podcast <laughs> where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran and joining me is a man who could kill you with his bare hands and get you some garlic bread. What, a biz- what an absolutely bizarre plot uh, synopsis that was. Sam Foster. Uh, hello. As the Backstreet Boys once sang... Ooh, baby, baby, we're back, baby. Backstreet Boys are back in town, all right. I think that was the lyrics to one of their songs. Uh, Film Chat continues in 2018 as unstoppable and changeless as the turning of the year itself. After a 2017 that everyone agreed was dog shit, mainly because we reviewed Blade of the Immortal, despite only having seen one Takeshi Miike film between us, here's to a better year ahead with no movement of the minute hand on the nuclear doomsday clock, no films directed by Matthew Vaughn coming out, 
and no awards given to films about a racist cop with a heart of gold. Now to take a big sip of coffee and check the Golden Globe winners. Ah, fuck! Okay, 2018 will probably be awful as well, but at least we'll still be here bringing you our weekly roundup of the top 10 celebrity Trump owns on Twitter and deep insightful reviews informed by knowledge of the director's entire filmography, even if they've made literally 100 films. This week, we're reviewing three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, a provocative revenge thriller which might offend a few of the snowflakes and the SJWs out there, and indeed anyone who isn't still living in the mid-90s. Plus, I'll be giving my review of Molly's Game, which is basically, it's an Aaron Sorkin film, what the fuck are you expecting? But I'm determined to string that out for 10 minutes. Uh, We'll also be talking about the Golden Globes and the BAFTAs, and the potential for a truly shit awards season. Uh, Mark Wahlberg's efforts to acquire all the money in the world, and we catch up on some of the films of 2017 that slipped through the film chat net. All that should leave just enough time for me to perform my latest impression. Gary Alderman as Winston Churchill reacting to being told that his two-finger V for victory gesture means up your bum. Up your bum! <laughs> up your bum! <laughs> up your bum! Oh, can't believe it means that. Oh, up your bum. Oh, ho, ho, ho. up your bum. Find them on the beaches. Up your bum. Find them on the streets. Up your bum. Oh, ho, ho, ho. Can't reason with a tiger when its head is up your bum. Oh, ho, ho. We have exciting news. Film Chat is doing another mostly ungoogable quiz. If you've not been to one of these before, this is a fun evening where we do a film quiz where most of the questions are ungoogleable. You can't Google them. The idea being the rounds are as entertaining and as fun to do than winning is. Just, you know, it's a genuine quiz where they're taking part. It's better than the winning. Yeah. The winning is also good. I hope you like quizzes with a lot of sort of audio visual multimedia content a lot of pizzazz it's a bit it's like going to one of the best presentations you've ever seen it's like a really good ted talk so it's, oh my god it's such a good ted talk like jj abrams and he's talking about that box or whatever but like even better yeah yeah so we are doing our sick quiz it's going to be at the social on little portland street which is just uh, near oxford circus on tuesday the 23rd seven o'clock it is absolutely free the quiz is going to be fun the rounds diverse the prizes existent yeah. We don't know what they're going to be. They will exist, though. They will exist. They're probably going to be... I mean, they'll be like the quiz itself, you know? It's more about the fun of receiving a prize than the actual like exactly. content of the prize. We seek the spiritual wealth in life. Yes. <laughs> uh, it feeds the beast of consumerism to earn prizes that are actually good. Exactly, exactly. So we won't be doing that. So come along, bring your mums, bring your dads, bring your friends. Yeah, but not too many friends. Because there's only room for about 25 people in there. So just bring a few of your best friends. Don't invite, like, you know, large numbers of, like, hangers-on and, like, acquaintances and people you aren't really that close to. I feel like your bit of the (laughs) sellers undercutting my bit. I don't see why. All I'm saying is that we need the absolute cream of your friends there. Not Not any old random shit. Bring some people of high quality... Bring some real high quality characters. Yeah. Okay. 
just because it's free, don't fucking just cram the room with all your like sort of detritus in your uh, address book. That's all. That's all I'm saying on that. So uh, Michael Patrick got in touch with us <laughs> to say. Um, too late for the end of year podcast but i think my favorite 2017 film was the work did you just get a chance to see it that's a night he's irish did you just get a chance to sorry see yeah it? i'm not you know i can't do the accent but uh love to hear your thoughts i give it nine thumbs up danny i understand you have watched this i saw this not two days ago on itunes you can rent it for five quid it is money very well spent you can rent it for three pounds on google play mate well i'm not some cuck for google i'm a cuck for itunes okay <laughs> slightly superior cuck yeah and it is totally brilliant and had i seen it last year it would have definitely crashed my top 10 movies of 2017 it's basically a documentary set at Folsom prison where every twice a year they do this four day intensive uh therapy session where they invite people from the outside to join in and it's hardened prisoners who for the most part doing life sentences for extreme acts of violence or it may and they're all like lifers and they over the four days they sort of discuss uh what their fears and how they ended up there and what they're worried about and it is like this very very powerful disarmingly emotionally honest uh portrayal of like how fragile masculinity is and how these men have like are all very very similar and they're kind of i mean you can sort of take what you it's quite open-ended what you um take from the movie but I kind of sort of thought it was just how like masculinity is a terrible choking thing which like ruins many many lives and the only difference between the people outside the prison is like social economic ones and like you know everyone seems to have issues with their fathers and their like how to express their emotions and they can't articulate themselves yeah and that's the real prison but that's not too trite <laughs> a thing to say but yeah it was I like cried five times watching it that's a lot of cries yeah, it's like, it's not structured. There's not like a third act climax or whatever. It's just like a sort of wave of like very, very like disarmingly emotionally honest scenes where it really, um, I don't know, really uh, had an effect on me. It's like the first 10 minutes of Up like uh, nine times in a row. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I feel like my review would be like, just go and see it. It's a film which I have like no... Uh, reservation about recommending to people i was like i can guarantee that you'll love this and if you don't i just don't be friends with you because you're like there's something wrong with you as a person you need to have a four-day you know intensive workshop to understand like this film yeah 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 you're obviously imprisoned by your own masculinity if you didn't like it exactly cool yeah well i i meant to check it out but i haven't done it yet but i will watch it when i when i want to cry a whole bunch of times you know, when I just feel a bit glummed up, when I got like tear duct constipation and I just haven't had a good cry in a while and I got a detox. Um, yeah. I'll check it out. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M. Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. That's the news that's been to print. So we're getting into awards season, which means that our next few episodes are going to feature a lot of awards chat. I know people like that, uh, talking about what's been recognized and what's the snubs and the anti-snubs. Um, and so they've had the Golden Globes already. We didn't really discuss the nominations for this. I wasn't really paying that much attention, to be honest. Yeah, but if I had, I'd been outraged. I would have been outraged. Fucking shit. I didn't yeah. realize till after the fact. Well, this is the thing. This seems to be the main narrative that's taking hold with this year's awards uh, is that they seem to suck. I mean, there wasn't any obvious kind of um, uh, 
front runners beforehand like it wasn't completely clear what it was that was going to be massively recognized at the oscars and i think some of this confusion is probably you know uh leaked into the voters like they haven't just known what you're supposed to vote for and so they've uh voted for a bunch of random shit and it seems like um there's been a bit of a lowest common denominator um uh, results so the golden globes the um nominations for the best drama were three billboards outside of missouri which we're going to talk about shortly call me by your name dunkirk the post and the shape of water so uh and then the best motion picture musical or comedy was Lady Bird, the disaster artist, Get Out, somewhat controversially, as it's not, a, you know, necessarily musical or comedy. <laughs> uh, the Greatest Showman. Not necessarily musical or comedy. <laughs> and, um, and I, Tonya. And the winners in the respective categories were Three Billboards um, and Lady Bird. I don't know. What are, your, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, Three, three Billboards is a bit of an odd uh, selection for... I have for... a very cynical take on this. Yeah, let's hear, let's hear your take. Which I think there is, like, first of all, like a bit of a white lash following... Uh, you know, a move to be progressive last year. People have just like, you know, we already we did the sort of, you know, racism's bad year. Yeah. And uh, that issue has been trumped by all the sexual harassment allegations. And on paper, Free Billboards is about a woman trying to find justice for her daughter who is who was sexually abused and then murdered against a entirely male uh, law enforcement, a system, a male system. So you feel like it should be the film of the moment. But as we will discuss later, which is a phrase we've said four times now, yeah, uh, it's it, not it doesn't really, do, it's do not that. that film. Yeah, um, so I feel like there's a slight. Uh, it feels like the film you should vote for almost politically, you know. Um, yeah, maybe uh, if you haven't seen the movie. If you haven't seen the movie, which I wonder a lot if like a lot of the don't. voters haven't seen the film, and that's why they're voting for it because they just read the synopsis and they were like, you know, this seems appropriate for now. Yeah, and I hear, I've, only, I've only heard nothing but good things about Lady Birds. So yeah, unfortunately, it hasn't come out yet, so we can't have really great opinions on it. Because, like, Get Out was, like, often the musical and comedy section in the Golden Globes is where, like, the Martian won. And it usually just means, like, the film everyone liked and was actually a massive commercial hit, like, the everyone's favourite blockbuster of the year. So Get Out was, like, London to that. And I don't know if, like, Lady Birds is a superior movie or, like, another thing where, like, people feel they should champion a female director, writer-director. Maybe. Then Greta Gerwig kind of got shot in other categories. But Greta so Gerwig, yeah, despite winning... Maybe it's just sort of like, you know, we'll give you that one, but we won't nominate you for director. You yeah. Know, it feels like a sort of a weird trying to just appease a lot of things. A very, very pale male-style collection of uh, best directors at the Golden Globes. Guillermo del Toro, Martin McDonough, Christopher Nolan, Ridley Scott, and Steven Spielberg. Well, um, Natalie Portman called them all out. It was quite one of the highlights of the ceremony. Oh, really? I didn't see this. She said the following. We are honored to be here to present the award for Best Director. And here are the all-male nominees. <laughs> A point well made. Yeah. Where was Greta Gerwig? Where was, uh, what's her name, Julia Decano for Raw? Yeah, absolutely. Or Kelly Reichard. I don't know if certain women was technically last year. for. It's hard to know with the U.S. release dates and stuff. Yeah, but you know, it was or Lucretia Mortel for Zama. That was this year. Um, it was quite annoying to see Sam Rockwell win Best Supporting Actor over Willem Dafoe in the Florida Project, which is also massively snubbed. Like oh, yeah, Florida, Florida Project, Project didn't get a Best um, a Picture nomination in either category. Yeah, just like a weird thing. The the other big story out of the Golden Globes was uh, Oprah's big speech, which everyone immediately hailed as presidential, which is bizarre, <laughs> but okay. Uh, and it was quite good. I assume you've. You've yeah, seen yeah. it, yeah, the Oprah speech. Um, you know, I mean, it was perfectly fine, but it was a bit annoying the way it was like immediately sort of taken to be some sort of early presidential run. And it's there's something really bizarre about the way that 
because Donald Trump is a president now and he's a celebrity and like everyone everyone seems to be thinking, well, if he can be the president, anyone can be. You know, just yeah. like literally anyone in the public eye can be can be the president serve, now. You know, do work in public office for years and years and years, bypass all that. It's just like you just accumulate enough celebrity. It was like before they were like it's an absolute outrage that this man with no qualifications and no uh, history <laughs> of serving in public office is suddenly becoming the president out of nowhere. And now they're like, well, maybe we should just get someone who is like that, but we like them better, and they yeah, should yeah. be the president. Well, okay, if you want a famous person, at least make them a good famous yeah, exactly. person. You know, yeah. at least make them Oprah say i don't know that seems kind of silly to me but i'm still glad that she was up there and talking about it um because people were saying afterwards that i mean obviously they they had the um the time's up thing a lot of people wearing this time's up pin about um sexual harassment and uh, sexual you know violence different kinds in hollywood and um they were wearing black like most people there men and women wearing black in recognition of that um but the men by and large didn't at all talk about it and a lot of women did at the ceremony like a lot of them referenced it in their speeches um and on the whole it's hard to be too impressed by the way men generally like comported themselves in regards to this um since they didn't talk about it and also like i kind of feel like it takes away from the statement that the women are making for all the men to do it you know obviously they don't want to seem it's all these men who like don't want to seem like they're not supporting the general message and they're like yes 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 sexual harassment is bad but it's like you know, it's not possible that every single man who's like wearing black in that room has not contributed to the culture yeah, or like the sort of general omerta around it or stuff. It's like it's not like all these guys suddenly discover that there's like shitty sexual practices in Hollywood like two months ago and now they're really upset about it. So it's just like, yeah, it well, makes it seem meaningless. Yeah, when I was watching it, I was like, oh, has it just become like a slight, uh, like when we we're at school, there's lots of like bands, like charity bands, they just become like a sort of fashion thing. Yeah. I was like, oh, is it going to just be that? And I was like, oh, I bet, you know, in a few months, there'll be a new sexual allegation, you know, thing. And the picture will be like one of the guys with a time's up pen. Didn't happened, take a few months. Happened, happened one happened day. Immediately. Immediately. With James Franco. Yeah. So James Franco got called out by a couple of women on Twitter, uh, one of whom said, um, complained that he had been exploited because he'd um, required her to do these like full nude scenes in a couple of his movies and hadn't paid her very well and stuff. And she hadn't felt able to refuse. And the other one said that um, he, like, forced her to perform oral sex um, or forced on him. Her head da- or, like, her forced head her head down, down to his crotch or something, yeah. like, quite gross like that. And, yeah, of course, he had, you know, he had worn black and uh, had the Time's Up pin and stuff on. And people were also calling out people like Justin Timberlake, who's in the new, like, Woody Allen movie, but, you know, has uh, is also wearing the Time's Up pin and stuff. Um, so... Yeah, I mean that just reinforces the the extent to which this like um, yeah you know just going just wearing a pin is obviously not gonna do it. <laughs> yeah. Um. So then we had the BAFTA nominations, um, which are also a bit weird. So the Post hasn't got any recognition at the BAFTAs, and it did get a bit of recognition in the Golden Globes. Another movie we haven't seen yet, but it's high up on my um, can't wait to hate watch. <laughs> as I assume it will suck. Um, uh, but also there was further kind of snubbing for um, Get Out and Lady Bird and The Florida Project, all movies which are not getting recognition they deserve. Um, so the best film BAFTA noms here were Call Me By Your Name, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, The Shape of Water, and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Darkest Hour also nominated for Outstanding British Film. Does that seem weird to you? Yeah. Like if you're in the main category, I don't know. I mean, I can understand sort of logic, but like... 
Um, just seems a bit weird. And also uh, the death of style in God's Own Country, Lady Macbeth, Paddington 2, and three billboards. Um, just, yeah, I don't know. Seems well, The weird. Darkest Hour got nine BAFTA nominations. It, like, it, it just feels we like... We haven't seen it, but it feels like such as a, like... It's so you automatic, know. you know? This kind of movie about Winston Churchill and how great he is. But because um, award shows just follow, like, trends and films like The Darkest Hour or, like, Imitation Game or Fear Everything just get automatically get awards because it's about some great white British guy. Yeah. But, like, at the same time, it's sort of... They've, like, snubbed Jordan Peele for Best Director and they didn't give a Best um, Director nomination to Barry Jenkins last year for Moonlight, which is, like, insane. It's obviously, you know, one of the most acclaimed films of, like, recent years. And it just, like, gives the Bastards this, like, kind of white male colonial bent to it. It's, like, where they, like, love, like, prestige heritage cinema of a bunch of white people and anything, like, new or exciting. And by that... All the BAFTA voters are just, like... diverse. Yeah, they're just, like, guys in suits sitting around laughing like Churchill at the Up Your Bum thing. Up your bum. (laughs) Up your... (laughs) (laughs) The way you're doing it, sir. Yes, sir. (laughs) But if if you turn it around, that's fine. (laughs) I wouldn't like millions of people to take it the wrong way. <laughs> oh, indeed. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I would just, ugh. It just makes me, like, I don't know. Well, it's been presented for, like, 12 years by Stephen Fry, who's, you know, has become an increasing, like, a caricature of just this, like, bumbling, sort of posh white guy, right? Who's, like, yeah. who represents that British self-image you know, like funny, wry, you know, blah, 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 but like no real content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but they are grading rid of Stephen Fry this year, which is quite nice. And he's going to be replaced by Joanna Lumley. He's like, get me his uh, nearest uh, British comedy bring legend equivalent. National, yeah, bring me a national bring, treasure. Bring woman. me a national treasure, yeah. But perhaps the jokes will be better this year. Joanna Lumley's a professional. Well, I guess Stephen Fry, he was funny in Blackadder, but that was a while ago. So He wasn't writing his own jokes. I was about to then. say, but Joanna Lumley's like a professional coming actress. Like, oh, isn't Stephen Fry one of those as well? But yeah, just, I mean, he definitely I've is. I've completely forgotten that he used to do that. Because I just see him as a sort of like Twitter man these days. Well, did he write his own gags for that speech, or did he have like a team of writers coming up with his um, Helena Handcart, Helena Bonham Carter gags? Maybe we should DM Joanne Lumley. Joanne give us, give Lumley. us some gags. I'll give you, I'll give us some gags. Joe Lums. Joe J- Lums. Hey, Joe Lums. Got some gags for you. Uh, they're puns based on who's attending the ceremony. Yeah, but I think we should get like really dark puns about how they're all a bunch of rapists. <laughs> sure, that sounds yeah. great idea. Let's let's do that. Let's use that for one of our comedy riffs on our podcast. I think they should like introduce like every you know every time someone's brought in for a award with like the most embarrassing bits of their filmography. I'd be like, you know, Justin Timberlake, who's recently worked with Woody Allen, and like, you know, or whatever, or you know, you yeah, McGregor, yeah, yeah. who made the ghost of Roman Polanski, and just you know, <laughs> <laughs> who's been accused of rape, Woody <laughs> Allen, who's been accused of rape, <laughs> yeah, exactly, just for like every single person. Um, another movie uh, on a slightly different topic that hasn't had like maybe as much awards tension as you might expect is um, Phantom Thread. Which uh, is up for Best Actor at the BAFTAs, um, but doesn't have a Best Movie nomination or anything. Also hasn't come out yet here. When is that? That's out quite soon, right? It comes out at the end of February the 1st, I believe. February the 1st, yeah. Um, But that'll be an interesting one to see, like, you know, because I might have to be retrospectively angry that it hasn't got, like, a lot much better attention. Well, people were complaining today on Twitter about how the, the new trailer for You Were Never Really Here just came out. 
and that's getting a March release. And I don't know if the distributors decided not to go the route of awards or whatever, but everyone, like, all the film journalists on Twitter were like, this film is so much better than every single film in the awards contention. Right, yeah. It feels like a real, like, But it might be, like, too early in the year now to be in the 29 conversation. Because for some reason it requires, you have to have a very short memory to be a um, voter. You think like Daniel Day Lewis's last performance, he says, would have a bit more buzz behind it. But it's like we've given him free Oscars. Now it's Gary's turn or whatever. Yeah. And you know, uh, almost like Paul Thomas Anderson is like so consistently excellent, it's almost automatic. We don't give him awards anymore. Yeah, I don't know. It's like, but he's not hasn't I like. I refuse to believe that Joe Wright deserves a best direct nomination more than Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, in either of these exa- movies, exactly. Just, it's impossible. Joe uh, Wright is Joe Wright's a hack director, in my opinion. He just thinks directing is having a flashy camera move. You've got to have one long tracking shot. I bet you there's a really, really long tracking shot somewhere in the darkest hour, and it's like following Churchill as he wanders about his desk and then, you know, goes to Parliament or something like that. people fucking lap that shit up. They love that shit. They love that shit. Yeah. They know a good film if it came and smacked them in their giant white faces. If it it, it got stuck up up their bums. Up their their bums. Up Um... In other news of a somewhat gendered nature, no, I, I, can just, I, okay. just, I just got it. All right, sorry. In other um, movie news, also pertaining to uh, issues of gender equality, uh, All the Money in the World has come out to pretty sort of okayish reviews, but hasn't done much business. Uh, this being the Ridley Scott film about the kidnapping of John Paul Getty III with Christopher Plummer replacing Kevin Spacey. And everyone was called back, the principal cast, including Michelle Williams and uh, Mark Wahlberg, to do these hasty reshoots, which apparently are seamless. And in the press store, uh, and in the press store, really, Scott was talking about how it was this real group effort and everyone sort of came together to get this thing done. And uh, it's come to light that Michelle Williams just took the bare minimum fee, which was like $80 a day. So she earned like $1,000 for like her nine days shooting and mark Wahlberg's agency played hardball and had to pay uh had to pay him 1.5 million <laughs> <laughs> which is, amazing. Which is I think, amazing i think the reshoots cost something like 10 million altogether and it's like a significant portion of that is literally just mark Wahlberg's fee yeah um and like this was sort of it's kind of an interesting story because it was reported as like being indicative of the um gender pay gap which is definitely true because you feel like Michelle Williams probably is in the position to play hardball in the way Mark Wahlberg is. Well, of course. I mean, they're both in exactly the same position. They're not going to, like... They, it's impossible for them. I mean, presumably they're both in, you know, key scenes, like, uh, with uh, Christopher Plummer. Yeah. So if, for them to be able to do the whole reshoots requires them to do it. So they basically, you know, had them over a barrel, I assume, to the same extent. Yeah, but I just wonder if, like... I don't know. If it's just... I feel like it's... If Michelle... It's more expected that, like, a man would do that. I don't know in my head. If, I don't know. Well, if it probably just, is. It probably is. Um, and it's just yeah, <laughs> it's just like very very funny. I think in a way. I mean, it's very depressing because it does like you know it says a lot about the state of affairs. It's but like I does Mark Wahlberg know the reason why they were doing the reshoots? It's like you you just think you would have some kind of sensitivity. It's not just like <laughs> some whim of Ridley Scott that you know he woke up one day and he's sort of power mad and he was like Kevin Spacey you know, frowned at me the wrong way and, and therefore I've, I've cut him out of the film and replaced him with Christopher Plummer. It's like, it was like a nas- you know, massive international sex scandal yeah. around Kevin Spacey that's ruined his entire career because he turned out to be, you know, this big serial abuser. And like, you know, therefore, you'd think you would pitch in a little bit. You wouldn't be like, well, I'm really sorry <laughs> that 
Kevin Spacey turned hey, out man, to be a sex criminal. Everybody's like, Kevin Spacey's a sexual perfect man, but my fee's my fee, okay? <laughs> I'll lower it for you, I've got to lower it for everybody. Come on. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, you know, to play Devil's Avocado here, Mark Wahlberg hated being on that film, despised Ridley Scott, and he just like, I'll come back, but you have to give me $1.5 million. <laughs> and then they paid him. He's like, oh, fuck. thought I was highballing you. Yeah. <laughs> How many retweets do you uh, come back on this meme? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah it's very, yeah, it's very, it's a very odd thing. I mean, it can't be that much of an arduous shoot, you know? Aren't they just like wearing, you know, nice old costumes and I talking to each other in rooms? I think it's harder for Mark Wahlberg than this for Michelle Williams. That's probably true. He's got to make more of an effort. He's got to make it's more he's always, effort. Well, he's always restraining himself from flying into a rage and beating someone to a pulp, isn't he? So that's probably a big part <laughs> of his feat. Actually, I would describe Mark Wahlberg's acting style as very effortful. Yeah. You can really sort of tell. He's very, like... <laughs> he's very, he's tiring him out all the time. He's like one step away from just like mouthing the other actor's lines, I feel. He's a bit like... Hey man, I'm okay, like, here's yeah, yeah, my yeah. line, okay, saying that. Hey man, you gotta pay this guy some money or he's gonna kill your grandson. Yeah. Do you think he's like the closest thing in the A-list acting world to Tommy Wiseau? Like in that <laughs> he is somebody who's clearly you know who who you could imagine kind of breaking a chair over someone's head or like <laughs> like ordering a hit on somebody or something like that someone with some serious dark psychology like right behind the eyes well, he's like a born again catholic these days but, but yeah, exactly that's why it's necessary you have to go through you have to have some kind of damascene moment just to stop fucking stabbing pencils into people's throats Jeez, yeah. and uh <laughs> And um, and he's just they both of them have to put so much like acting effort into just convincing as somebody who wouldn't do that. <laughs> like most of Tommy Wiseau's performance in the room is just about like hanging out with you know seeming like a guy who would just hang out normally with somebody. Like that's the that's the acting he's doing. And 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 Mark Wahlberg is the same thing. So almost like the funniest thing about this story is like obviously it was completely overshadowed by this like reshoot story. And then, like, Reese was like, well, at least that's done. There's, like, this whole other news cycle which isn't about the film. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of brilliant in a way. Yeah. I mean, people, people tend to talk about January as, like, quite a bad period for movies. Like, that's when they dump a lot of shit, you know, uh, that isn't very good. But I actually, there's quite a few films that I'm keen to see. I kind of want to see All the Money in the World, partly because of the narrative around the movie. And I want to see Christopher Plummer. Um, I want to see Marky Mark earning that fucking cash. Uh, and I also kind of want to see The Darkest Hour, which has got to be garbage. But I just want to see it. I read on Twitter today that um, there's a bit in The Darkest Hour where Churchill gets on the tube and he's surrounded by like an ethnically diverse bunch of common folk. And they all tell him, uh, I assume in a similar manner to the scene in Spider-Man 2 where he gets encouragement from the people on the train that he must defeat Hitler at any cost. Um, so he's, you know, he's been encouraged by regular folk and then it gives him the strength to go back into parliament and, you know, confront all the poshos telling him to surrender, which sounds fucking ace to me. Is it as good as that up the bum scene though? I don't know if it could be as good as the, uh, up your bum scene. Up your bum. <laughs> up your bum. Up your bum. We were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. Uh, we've been talking about the up your bum scene quite a bit. Um, but there's another scene which is also doing the rounds on the clips where um, Churchill's giving a toast and he says, Here's to not buggering it up. And they're all like, Not buggering it up, Winston. Um, and that's another gag about things going up the bum. So, Churchill, anal fixation. What's with the anal What's with the anal fixation here? Is it the writers? You've seen the imitation game, right? Who has the same writer as the Doctor? Uh, theory of Everything. These theory all, of Everything. There's right? all much and much this. I apologize. Andy McCartan did the Theory of Everything. 
Let me ask you this. Does anything go up Stephen Hawking's bum, or does he talk about make any bum jokes? He does get pegged by his wife, actually. (laughs) He gets pegged? He gets pegged, yeah, throughout his life. Okay. Well, there's a clear pattern emerging in that case. If anything, they toned it down for, for, for the darkest hour. I'm trying to think there is actually like a sort of bum scene in like if you're opening now. Maybe you caught onto something here. Yeah. Well, can you go back and watch the theory of everything? Oh, good. I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, you have to watch it. Uh, you can watch it at like 1.5 speed with the subtitles on <laughs> and then just report report back next week if there's any... Like, track down the filmography. Between us, we'll watch the whole filmography of this writer and we'll see how many bum gags he's, he's worked in in his whole, his whole career. So that's the little task for us. Up the bum! Up your bum! Oh, indeed! <laughs> and now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it astonishingly poor? Out of Danny for the judgment, we're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. Um, so. Uh, I didn't mention this in our intro, but you've seen another movie, Danny, recently. It's actually a 2017 film, this one, but we didn't get a chance to review it over Christmas, and you've now seen it. It's part of the awards conversation, so it's important for us to give our take. Yeah, The Disaster Artist, which is uh, James Franco's retelling of uh, the making of the best, worst film of all time, The Room, in which he plays that film's writer, director, and star, Tommy Wiseau, a bizarre guy of unknown origin. Uh, People think he's Polish, got a very specific Eastern European accent specific one which no one can place um and uh at the start of the film uh greg sestero played by uh, dave franco is a young 19 year old actor who dave franco is definitely 19 that's one of the many flaws in the film uh and he suffers from stage fright and he's at an acting class and he strikes a, a friendship with a mysterious tommy wiseau who's a fellow student who has completely fearless in his performances even if they're not particularly good and two of them become friends and they move to L.A. together. And when they both uh, fail to make progress as actors in the traditional Hollywood system, Tommy decides they'll just make a movie instead. And here is a clip from that film. Tommy, hey. Hey. What's this? Uh, this is Amber, who I was telling you about. Oh, girlfriend. Um, I, I don't know. Um... Okay. Well, I don't have time for this. I'm very busy right now. I have to change really quickly and go. Okay, is, is everything all right? Yeah, everything great on my end. You heard of Konstantin Stanislavski? Of course, yeah. He's like the greatest acting teacher of all time. Yeah, and now he taught me acting teacher. He seemed something special in me, you know, maybe, you know, I'll become a big star. So I have first class this evening. Well, pretty sure Stanislavski's dead. No, he's not dead. I just speak to him for your information. What do you think I speak to, girls? No. no. Okay, I'll let you know how it is, baby face. Maybe you can join me someday. Maybe I will. You're not so good. Sorry. So, uh, I don't particularly care for this movie, and the more I think about it, the more I don't like it. And now I'm starting to think it might just be bad. Okay. <laughs> it's like, it's a very unremarkable film, uh, where it feels like it's trapped between like an actual like proper film and just some sort of pet project of a famous guy and his celebrity pals like a funny or die sketch exactly and the take on the material is incredibly uh one note or maybe two note (laughs) in that it sort of constantly plays tommy wozo for laughs uh which is perhaps unavoidable because he's a very odd guy uh but and the basic humor the mode of the humor of the movie is that he'll do weird things or make really weird acting decisions and other like crew members or the great character will be like, ah, that's strange. Uh, and the way it is funny is the way the room itself is funny 
but it's been removed one, so it's less funny. Yeah. That makes sense. It's like someone explaining the joke. So, you know, the whole point of when you watch the movie The Room, you're like, what the hell were they thinking? And the disaster artist is just characters saying that, uh, which isn't that dramatically rich or interesting. And the second thing it does, it goes incredibly uh, soft on the character of Tommy. And in many ways, it's a classic awardsy movie because it's like La La Land, where it's just about a guy with a dream. With, with a dream. And he has setbacks and he faces rejection, but he never gives up hope because he has a dream. But I think that completely misdiagnoses what the room is actually about, which is about like unchecked ego. And uh, if someone's dream is that they want to be famous and adored by everybody, that person's obviously a raging narcissist. And by far the best part of the film is when he has this meltdown on set and he's a total dick to everyone around him. But for the most part, his bad behavior is kind of like put in the context of him being so weird he doesn't understand social norms. Yeah, so he's just a sort of harmless eccentric or something. Exactly. And uh, he doesn't know when he's like crossing boundaries or like lines or whatever. And the most like interesting part of the disaster artist is this meta quality in that The Room is a movie that was driven by and is completely infused by Tommy Wiseau's ego. And The Disaster Artist is one that's completely in service of James Franco's. And he's somewhat in love with his completely fine performance as Tommy Wiseau. He keeps on doing impressions of him in interviews and his... He just has not nailed the accent, I don't think. He, I think he really believes that he has like, gone to some sort of Brando-esque, Daniel Day-Lewis transformation here. Yeah. But it's basically like a bit like being stuck at a party where a guy thinks doing an impression of Borat is the funniest thing in the world. Yeah, like, yeah. It's just not, it's not that funny. And it's not that accurate. And I don't know how I feel about James Franco, who's also a writer director actor, who's made 14 movies by this point, none of which have seen the light of day, or the ones that have apparently sucked. And he comes along and... Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's Tommy Wiseau's story to basically celebrate himself while kind of shitting on Tommy Wiseau. Like, it's definitely like he is a um, figure of ridicule in the movie. He's like both ridiculed and like, hey, he's a dreamer, he's me, but he's also an idiot. Yeah. And so I think it's like a bit weirdly, the whole making the disaster artist and James Franco's involvement is weirdly kind of thematically appropriate, but also a bit mean-spirited. And I also think like part of the joy of the room is that it's like a bad cracker joke and everyone can enjoy it. And that's why it's like so successful because it's such a fun communal experience. And I'm like, I don't want James Franco sort of co-opting it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I was just like, I watched this at the Prince Charles, who are, you know, playing it forever, it seems. I guess they've got to make their money on the... Uh... I believe that they fund the entire <laughs> cinema now with the room and re- the room-related stuff. Yeah. I feel like there's probably a good movie to be made out of The Disaster Artist, but it's all been a bit ironed out. Yeah. And a very sort of meh movie. And it's like, out of the craziest, weirdest film of all time comes a completely... it's like well you know when Tommy Wiseau fucked up he made you know the room is something the disaster artist is nothing to write home about there's this trend amongst that group of um, Hollywood comedians for making these films that basically seemed to be aimed at their own pals yeah 
like uh what was that film where it was called something like it's the end of the world yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh which seemed you know it's just they're playing themselves all their friends playing each other and they're all sort of running and hiding from the apocalypse and it's just like watching millionaires doing a kind of like party game skit or something like that and even the interview is a bit like that it's like wouldn't it be really funny if we if we did this you know yeah uh what if my mate played king, kim jong point. you know earn and we we murdered him or something and it's just like because it's all these guys who hang out and they think they're the funniest people in the world and they think you know we can raise millions to for us to like make films about how you know funny we are and we'll just do that and i think you, describing um franco's impression as like something like you know a guy at a dinner party would do mm-hmm. seems apt because all their movies seem a bit like that just like dinner party bits that got like expanded way too far and yeah. it's like yeah it does it does seem like a project that is designed to ruin the joke yeah like the whole joke is that it seems like it came from space also like uh, to sort of like yeah make a movie about a bunch of people reacting to it it's very weird yeah and also i think that annoyed me is like they just found they just it's like they just saw the room it's like you're like 15 years behind everybody else yeah and the whole thing is like can you believe how weird this is like yes that's the whole fucking point so do they do they interrogate at all the whole thing so one of the sort of meta narratives around the room is to do with uh like the the um black money you know or the sort of like opaque source that's, that's of never explained but they, they, they constantly asked about like where's the money from it's like it's not a problem you know but they don't really you well, know they don't know no one knows no one knows so, like but like what it what if it turns out that he is like an ex-hitman or something <laughs> <laughs> you know it wouldn't be entirely implausible i mean like I, I i've always vaguely assumed that he's got some kind of gang background and that's why he has all this money you know it's probably going to turn out that, like, he is some sort of serial killer and that, like, Hollywood just sort of, like, adopted him as this, like, funny pet that they would sort of drag around onto talk shows and awards ceremonies and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. Wouldn't surprise me. Um, Up the bum! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to start 2018 by, like, libeling as many people as possible. Tommy Wiseau is a serial killer. Mark Wahlberg is probably also a serial killer, isn't he? Franco's a rapist. Franco's a fucking rapist. Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shit. Okay, start reviewing now. Molly's Game. This is the directorial debut of the best screenwriter of all time, Aaron Sorkin. He's finally got the reins to himself. Um, having you know written a whole bunch of things for loads of different directors, and now he's d- doing his own thing. So it's an adapted from a memoir called Molly Molly's Game: From Hollywood's Elites to Wall Street's Billionaire Boys Club: My High Stakes Adventure in the World of Underground Poker. I don't know why they didn't keep that entire title <laughs> for the movie. Brevity is the soul of wit. Oh boy! Uh, by um, Molly Bloom, who the, ma- who the who the movie is about. Um, she's played by Jessica Chastain in the film, and it is about uh, well, she is a um, professional skier who suffers an, an accident um, at trials to to be in the Olympics um, and quits skiing. And then ends up through a variety of uh, reasons falling into the world of um, underground poker. She works for some shitty guy who like hosts a poker game with a bunch of celebrities, and then she starts um, kind of mussing her way into the poker hosting business, which seems to be extremely lucrative. And she just gets like loads of rich people to uh, play poker and give her big tips. Um, and the, the film cuts back and forth between um, 
her uh, building up that career and sort of progressing in that world and the sort of present day in which she um, is being um, she's been arrested and, and accused of uh, colluding with the Russian mob basically and has to get Idris Elba to defend colluding her. with the Russians you say Sam? Yeah she's in deep she's in deep with the Russians. Um, here is a clip of Molly sassing somebody. All the clips are like that. I don't know which one I'm going to pick but Is he cheating? No. How would you know? I know. He and Diego aren't in bed together? No. What about him and you? A 52-card deck produces hundreds of millions of random patterns. But every time one of you loses two weeks in a row, you're sure something fishy's going on? Come on. I'm going to stop paying you. What do you mean? As my assistant. Firing me? I'm not firing you. I'm just going to stop paying you. You get paid once a week from the game. It doesn't seem fair. But I also have a job working for you 24 hours a day. And if you have a, a job, you wouldn't have the game. You understand what I'm saying? I understand each of the words that you're saying, but I don't understand Look. what you're... 24 hours a day, every day. You're going to stop paying me to do that job because I'm making too much money doing my second job, and if I say no, I'll lose both jobs because it doesn't seem fair? This is bad right now. Welcome to the real world. Um. Ooh. Ooh, so wow. it does cut to ribbons of words. <laughs> words are weapons. It does Use feel effect. <laughs> feels almost superfluous to review this film because the review basically consists of like, what's your opinion of Aaron Sorkin? Uh, and he's a man who has been, uh, you know, so that same sort of toolbox of tricks which he has been using to diminishing returns for his entire career. Um, and the worst possible way to experience him, I think, is like in an unadulterated way. So The Social Network was quite an acclaimed film, and that's an interesting one because David Fincher directed it, and he kind of directs against uh, a Sorkin script, um, and that the characteristics that are always prevalent in uh, Sorkin's movies, all about these like brilliant people who are hard to get on with, and you know, they're always arguing and snapping at each other, and they're kind of like, you know, a weird um, sort of institutions full of like fractured egos and stuff. Uh, and in, in the social network, all those people are absolute dipshits and like like the worst people in the world. And it feels like Fincher has a lower opinion of them than Sorkin does. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that, that helps elevate that material. Uh, and in the Steve Jobs movie wasn't particularly good, but it's directed by Danny Boyle, who's got something going on, you know, <laughs> and it had some interest in that. Got some panache. Has got a bit of panache. And so, so Molly's game is just pure Sorkin. And I think, I mean... He's an interesting guy in a way because like there's so much ego and narcissism to him anyway that it always feels inevitable that he's going to make uh he's going to direct the movie himself and like in order to do anything good with his material you have to really battle against how much Sorkin there is in it all his characters kind of sound the same uh and they all um uh like they all sound like Aaron Sorkin basically his sort of vision of human interactions is what structures his world. You're really in like the Sorkin universe, not in the actual human universe. Um, and so obviously in order to have like complete creative control, he would uh, direct the movie himself, but he doesn't actually have anything that he to do with his own material. It's not like everything that was made previously didn't quite capture what he was getting at. So he decided to do it himself. It's very like televisual uh, and pretty unremarkable in every way. You know, it's like, why didn't you just, get like a professional director to do. like you're not a director <laughs> like why didn't why did you do it yourself um so that is one problem with the film uh it's pretty much it, it's a it's a deeply annoying film in all, all the ways you would imagine uh the sort of the sorkin thing of um every kind of interaction progressing via a series of pedantic corrections of other people because they got facts slightly wrong is like i think you mean facts 
is like it's like packed <laughs> in this film and uh there's something particularly irritating if i want to sound really snobbish about Please it do. by the way that like all of his cultural references are so fucking mi- middle of the road as well like they're all about like the constitution or like in this movie they talk about the crucible quite a lot which like everyone reads at school and then the movie ends with a winston churchill quote that he probably read on like a placemat and it's like you know if you're gonna seem like this sort of polymath and all your characters are geniuses who've read everything and know all the facts at all all the time like why are you only using things as though you picked like a couple of magazines off a newsstand and flicked through them and just put in yeah you know what i mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not it doesn't even seem that clever like it doesn't seem like that character was learning... he's a genius he's yeah it's, there's books. something there's something deeply kind of shallow and idiotic about it and i think he 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 doesn't seem to realize how annoying it would actually be to be in a room with anybody who talked or spoke that way and my overwhelming feeling watching the film is that like um it, this guy must be a fucking nightmare to hang out with like i'm convinced that if you had dinner with aaron sorkin it would be d- d- a deeply unpleasant experience like you know I, 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 he must be you know people do this like dream dinner party things yeah if i was doing like a nightmare dinner party i think he would be like an absolute shoe in him hitler <laughs> pol pot, pol pot all the greatest mass murderers and dictators in history plus aaron sorkin basically um so like his most famous previous project is the west wing and then he followed that up with a bunch of other things. He made the newsroom recently. But like the newsroom and the West Wing are both things which are set in institutions that are important or weighty in some way um, and, you know, ha- have a kind of higher purpose to them. Uh, and that is not at all the case in, in Molly's game. I mean, there is something intrinsically, there's some intrinsic interest in watching people trying to do journalism well. But that's not the true of someone who's just trying to like make loads of money from poker because it's like, who gives a shit? That's like a bullshit job. Yeah. You know, like uh, literally her, the way she makes money is just by hanging around super rich people who are addicted to gambling. And then like, they just like give her money and, you know, she's a genius. So it's like, why do you have to work a bit harder for me to be at all invested in why that's, why that's interesting. Sure. Um, And I think basically what, what interests Aaron Sorkin is um, driven individuals who want to succeed at any cost. But I'm not that, you know, as I don't think that that's necessarily a particularly like you know, great or admirable that's thing. That's a serial killer mentality right there. It's this sort of, it's it's this kind of like business world um, mentality where ambition is a virtue. And I don't really see that as the case. Listen, Sorkin, I just watched The Work, okay? And I think you should watch it as well. Masculinity yeah. is a prison that is very, very harmful and leads to many, many problems. He, yeah, I mean, I think we talked a bit, a bit about this in the, when we were talking about Steve Jobs, but he definitely has this very, very old-fashioned view of what masculinity. A man, man is a man. I'm a, a man, man is a man, yeah. Um, and that really feeds into the way he, he does women. Uh, and obviously the main character is a woman in this, but there's, there's really only one kind of female protagonist he could possibly write, and it's a... Uh, Wank fantasy. <laughs> yeah, it is a complete wank fantasy. It's like a beautiful woman who uh, knows all the facts and is very driven and determined to succeed. Ooh. And that could only possibly be displayed by surrounding her with men whose balls she busts. You know, there's no other kind of world that this that she could exist in. Like Jessica Chastain's character could not go out and hang out with women in this movie because he wouldn't have no idea what to do with that. Um, so it's like it's it's a very um, sort of old-fashioned and lame version of what men it's like what men believe like a really good feminist film is or something you know like a woman who goes around like talking dame yeah cuts men down to size um 
and her kind of integrity she's shown to have a lot of integrity and that mainly comes from the fact that she gets loads of dirty secrets and dirty laundry from the men who in the poker game um and she doesn't reveal them to anybody even when like the fbi off her deals on the basis of her doing so but i was kind of like especially in an era where we're hearing a lot about um dirty secrets that are coming out about people's bad behavior and how they should have come out earlier you know yeah yeah, yeah. The, the a woman who exists kind of in this world and protects people's secrets at all costs is, it doesn't seem like a particularly great virtue you know why are you protecting these men like the movie goes out of your way does, sam's so what a man does like all these guys are absolute degenerates like they're complete like ultra rich scumbags who they're all millionaires and they obviously are act horribly and they you know waste all their money paying poker and they're awful so why so her protecting them like why is that a good thing she just throw them under the fucking bus immediately i have two more moans about this movie i didn't like it i don't know if you noticed but kind of i mean i didn't expect to like it either i just kind of went to see it because i wanted to see a movie that i could shit on and i'm able to do that so there's a really weird thing in the movie where michael Cera turns up playing <laughs> he plays a character called player x who i believe is um someone from the book who's a kind of Hollywood superstar who's also great at poker and he always cleans up. And he's this kind of dark, um, glamorous figure who uh, sort of has all this power and is the, is, everyone always comes to play with Player X. Played by Michael Cera. Played by Michael Cera, okay. you know, from Superbad um, and Arrested Development and stuff. And the, his introduction is absolutely hilarious because uh, she's talking about him in these kind of awe, like tones of awe. And then there's these like split second shots of him in like red carpet functions and being photographed by, you know, paparazzi and stuff like as if he is like Brad Pitt or something. Wow. Like, like he is like the hottest shit on planet Earth. And, you know, Michael Cera, bless him. I mean, I love Michael Cera, but he's a geeky ass looking dude. You know, he's not. <laughs> He just does not fit that mold. It's very strange. And it, the only reason I can imagine for him being cast is that Aaron Sorkin knows who it is and it is, like, someone like him, you know? It's probably fucking Jesse Eisenberg, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's, it's someone like that. Like, it's some sort of nerdy guy who's, oh, you know... Oh, right, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because otherwise, why would you cast Michael Strin in this role? It makes no sense whatsoever. And he really sticks out like a sore thumb. But that is a good part of the movie because if it was, like, some entourage-type prick then it would you know that's boring but if it's michael Cera, it's like sure why not michael Cera? he's you know he's he's got the biggest balls in the room why not um part of the sort of screenwriting 101 thing that sorkin tries to do you know uh, he, he probably read um story by robert mckee many years ago so you've got to have a bit of like emotional ballast to your to your character's journey so she has like daddy issues um and her father is played by kevin costner in it and it's just just done incredibly clumsily it's really lame he's like a psychologist he's a bit mean to her and then there's like one scene towards the end of the movie where she's at a particularly dark place uh, and he just like turns up out of nowhere and sits down at a bench and has they have a conversation you know where they kind of reconnect but it's just like i mean i couldn't can't exaggerate to you how lame and unrealistic it is like is it's full of like, cliches stop psychoanalyzing me i'm not one of your patients that's pretty much exactly how the scene plays out he does this yes, one, one of the lines he's like i'll do what therapists should never do i'll just give you the answers and then they have this like really quick conversation that completely heals all wounds you know and then they can they love each other and it's all fine again and it's like we should do not... that all the time why therapists just always do that why didn't he have this conversation with her like five years ago and they, you know if they could just be great pals in their entire history together we could be sort of wiped clean um so yeah i don't know it's like it's just it's just what you think it's gonna be isn't it it's like Sorkin's a parody of himself by now and he hasn't got anybody surrounding him to sort of mitigate de- mitigate it so it's just like full on it's like full full sorkin parody and it's yeah 
It's pretty, it's pretty lame. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio. So she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. So, finally, the review we've been teasing all episode Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. This is the third film from writer director Martin McDonough, who previously made Seven Psychopaths and In Bruges. And this film just won Best uh, Drama at the Golden Globes and is a big front runner in the awards competition now. And the plot is uh, Mildred Hayes, played by Frances McDormand. Her daughter has been raped and killed, and the culprits have not been brought to justice. And feeling that the police aren't really doing enough. She um, rents out the advertising space on free billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, which say... Rape uh, while dying, while still, dying no arrests, still no arrest. How come Officer Willoughby? Uh, Officer Willoughby being the sheriff played by uh, Woody Harrelson. And this causes a big foreign town and it becomes a sort of battle of wills between uh, Willoughby and his deputy uh, Dixon, played by Sam Rockwell, and uh, Mildred, played by Frances McDormand. And a whole other host of interesting, colourful characters, and it goes off in a lot of different directions. A lot of different directions, uh, which we can't really discuss without spoiling it. But here is a clip of Mildred and Willoughby having one of their first uh, tete-a-tetes. I'd do anything to catch the guy who did it, Mrs. Hayes. But when the DNA don't match no one who's ever been arrested, and when the DNA don't match any other crime nationwide, and when there wasn't a single eyewitness from the time she left your house to the time we found her, well, right now, there ain't too much more we can do. Could pull blood from every man and boy in this town over the age of eight. There's civil rights laws prevents that, Mrs. Hayes. And what if he was just passing through town? Pull blood from every man in the country, then. Then what if he was just passing through the country? If it was me, I'd start up a database. Every male baby what's born, stick him on it. And as soon as he'd done something wrong, cross-reference it, make 100% certain it was a correct match, then kill him. Yeah, well, there's... Definitely civil rights laws prevents that. I'm doing everything I can to track him down. I don't think those billboards is very fair. The time it took you to get out here whining like a bitch, Willoughby. Some other poor girl's probably out there being butchered right now. But I'm glad you got your priorities straight. I'll say that for you. Great. Great. Give that woman a golden globe. You Um, have. Excellent. (laughs) Yeah, so we saw this movie at the London Film Festival. The last film I saw. Last film, yeah, last film we saw there. Um, and I would say I was like on board with it for most of the of the running length. And then it kind of uh, meandered off into surprising directions towards the end. And then I left and I was a bit like, I think we came over a bit like, well, I'm not quite sure about that. Like, it's a bit weird. And then over time, I, I feel like it's sort of diminished. And a lot, there's been a kind of backlash around it. It's a funny movie in a way because it's got 93% or something on Rotten Tomatoes. So it's got like heavy, heavy critical acclaim. But there's been quite a lot of um, murmurings about it on Twitter. Um, and I think that pretty much all the misgivings about it are, are completely legitimate. Um, I, I, if it was a debut feature, I feel like it might have gotten a bit of a tougher time. Um, because I think some of the, you know, so Martin McDonough directed this movie who uh, he previously directed in Bruges and uh, Seven, Seven, Psych- Seven Psychopaths. And he's known for um, this like highly chatty, quite kind of scabrous style, um, quite vulgar, 
um, the sort of thing that you might describe as Tarantino-esque, you know, like these kind of dark characters who are all uh, rather mean to each other and throw around naughty words very liberally. Um, and uh, in the in, like, the quality of his past movies seems to, you know, have have uh, been enough, or like the context in which these used have, have been okay. And I think that like part of that has um, given Three Billboards an easier ride. But he does not is not applying a particularly light touch to some of the more like potentially problematic elements in this film and they just it just doesn't work like if you're gonna have jokes about that that revolve around like white people saying the n-word in a way that's really hilarious or like um like uh, little people being like mocked for their height and stuff like they've got to have a reason for that to be in there and it, and in and in far too much in this film it just feels like an easy punchline and the kind of humor that should have been dead and buried like 20 or 30 years previously yeah absolutely I mean, I'm going to do something which I hate when reviewers do, a reviewer like myself, which is like, be a bit clairvoyant and like, you know, this is what was going on. But it feels somewhat meta in that, in the context of the plot, Mildred erects these billboards to instigate some action. And it feels a bit like he wrote this opening act and like the film will come forth from this premise. And so it meanders a lot. And on reflection, they're like characters only appear for one scene. And it feels quite first drafty at times. And it just that coupled with this uh, problematic issues, you just get the sense like there hasn't been quite enough thought put into it. Yeah, not exactly. And exactly. Like he's he's dealing with all of these things that are very touchy issues. And you really shouldn't just give, give a stab at it, <laughs> especially the whole setting of it is foreign to him. You know, he's this Irish filmmaker and it's an outsider's view of america well he's, he's london irish he's london like irish. fake irish london. right yeah but he um uh you know it's, just, it's like outside his view of like small town america and, and and issues like racist police violence which the movie tackles not just a bit but a lot um it obviously needs to be very carefully handled and done correctly and he just seems to the movie acts as though it is just like fuel for more kind of provocative banter yeah, I mean, I've read some defenses of it, and there's there's a defense which is like, you know, uh, it's real. You know, racists love their moms, domestic abusers love their daughters. You know, even even racists are sad sometimes, and <laughs> <laughs> it's got that element to it. But it kind of like it equates, uh, but by through the plotting, it puts a mother grieving for her daughter it gives the has the same prominence, or even less prominence, to a racist becoming less of a dick yeah the sort of redemption story for like one of the biggest scumbags imaginable basically which is very problematic and it's also a case of like i think another defense is like he's just scabrous about everybody you know everyone goes in for a bad time uh it's like it's like south park yeah but it's like that approach just completely does not understand the concept of institutionalized uh, bigotry no it's like if you like you know if you're making jokes about peter dinklage's height you're just a dick. Like it's like, well, I made jokes about this guy's haircut, or whatever. It's like, yeah, but like he does not isn't live. That, his I mean, life. isn't that literally what Bernard Manning? How he defended his comedy? Yeah, exactly. He was like, yeah, I make fun of chinkies and packies <laughs> and uh, and whites. And I think uh, sort of this problem is compounded because it's so much about like uh, justice. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> yeah. But you start to question the morality of Martin McDonough, and like, is this guy okay, or is he like, because you know. What's so odd is that In Bruges is like a very moral film and that whole film is sort of like this weird purgatory movie about, you know, right and wrong and people, you know, if they've crossed a line, you know, ends with someone sort of nobly killing themselves because they feel they've sinned yeah. in a way. But in that, like, in this movie, uh, none of that clarity is there. And also, 
Cousin Bruges had this like long plotline with a, a a a dwarf character who's like also mocked. And yeah. now there's like another one. It's like, is it's that like, just something Monic Monad is he's just yeah. into that? He just what is, likes what mocking. is what is the deal with him and yeah, people of restricted height, you know? Like what's going on there, Madonna? Like we need I need an insight into your into your whole into your whole like uh, mindset. And it was a real odd moment in the screening when we watched this and there's this the probably the, the worst moment relating to that is this uh, gag where Peter Dinklage says, um, I need to use the little boys room and like there's quite a lot of laughter in our screening and I was like, a bit like people are dicks. It's just because the movie seems like this kind of prestige provocative, edgy film. And so you think you're hearing that kind of joke. But it, you, what you're actually hearing is like, you know, like Les Dawson or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do think like probably like the saving grace is that the acting is like really, really excellent. Yeah. And it kind of papers over some of the cracks of the screenplay. And Frances McDormand can add this to her roster of like badass mother characters. She seems to constantly be cast as. She is basically the main reason to see the movie, I think. And there's definitely, especially in the first part of the film, there is some satisfaction from seeing um, her uh, engaging in these various confrontations and stuff. And it's a real shame, in a way, like that it kind of slightly goes off the rails uh, because the general sort of setup of her um, wreaking havoc with these cops um is quite satisfying to watch you know and she's like yeah she delivers a real powerhouse performance and she's really yeah i think like my yeah my sort of uh, takeaway is that i was just kind of like, disappointed it was like it was always on the verge of being more interesting than it wanted than it was you know yeah. and a more interesting movie would have stuck with her and the idea of you know the whole town feels sorry for her but the moment you start attacking the police that's a big no-no and like how does people's you know allegiances shift or have you and it sort of does it a little bit, but then it becomes more about the Sam Rockwell character, who is much, even though very ably played by Sam Rockwell, and he's like very good as he always is. He's just not as interesting a character. Yeah. And it's just like you know, don't sell me this movie about <laughs> this woman trying to get justice and you know some sort of peace with her daughter, and then make it about this other dude. Yeah, it's about it's about like it's about like institutional like police failure. And partly police racism, and also about rape culture, and those are two extremely relevant topics to now. And it turns out that he doesn't really have anything to say about them. He yeah. just raises all of these like questions, and then kind of um, uh, absolves himself of any responsibility to to actually deal with them. And it seems like the whole thing was just in service of like you know a fun, edgy romp in the vein of Seven Psychopaths or something. Which is a movie about you know hitmen or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. So a real a real oddity and and this feels rather tone deaf of it to get so much like awards attention. To be honest, I don't really understand why. Yeah. I mean, the final thing I would say is that I was listening to an interview with Mark McDonough and he said like he wrote the first draft in 2009. I was like that shows a lot. Yeah. But if you told me he wrote that, you know, 999, I'd be like, okay, that also sounds plausible. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it can't be relevant because it feels so in the past, as you said. Which is a shame. But up the bus. <laughs> <laughs> That's my endless sign off. Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at. Right, that's enough now. Back to film chat. Okay, we're drawing to the close of our first podcast of 2018. 
Um, it's been a pleasure to be back. I've had a great time. Have you Have you had a good time, Danny? I've had a great time. <laughs> have you had fun? <laughs> I've had a lot you, of fun. You enjoyed yourself, have you? Oh, I've had a lot of fun. Excellent. <laughs> I'm so beside myself. Let's have a little bit, a little bit more fun. Ooh, a little, a little bit, bit more fun before we before we sign off. So um, you get a lot of. I do feel like one thing we haven't done enough of in our podcast is ring content and audio time out of legendary contrarian film critic Armand White, who writes for the National Review. His basic shtick is anything that the other critics like, he hates, and anything other critics hate, he likes. Uh, and he always puts this down to like decadent culture uh, and how Bourgeois. it shows you the decline of America that you know they didn't like these films and they liked these films, whereas the truth is like the exact opposite. Gotcha. Um, and it's quite funny. He's very satisfying to read sometimes because there are occasions when the critical consensus is wrong, and then sometimes he actually quite nails quite well why that's the like case. Like a broken clock, he's right. Twice yeah, <laughs> so his description of um, uh, of three billboards outside of Missouri was quite good, wasn't it? It was like some kind of Tarantino light fable with no um, moral purpose, or is something like that. Yeah, yeah. It and like it was like on, it was like bang on armed. Um, but a a review of his, which you might take more issue with, uh, is his review of Justice League, uh, which he describes as a triumph and Zack Snyder's masterpiece. Um, and he does this like annual list, which is called his like better than list, which is kind of his kind of pulling the curtain down and showing you just how much, you know, it is all about being contrarian. It's like yeah. shit film was actually better than good film. Like yeah, that's yeah. his whole thing. Uh, so Zach's not, uh, Justice League was better than, you know, whatever, some other blockbuster that other people seem to be good, like Wonder Woman or something. Um, but his review of it, I think is genuinely great. It's got some really good lines in it. So I'm just going to read a few, uh, a few excerpts. And I want you to be thinking as you listen to this, uh, just remembering the movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, you just pay, all you need to picture is like uh, it's just a clangingly incoherent movie, relentlessly ugly, no like wit or interest in, in any point makes absolutely no sense. Um, so, uh, Armand White and Justice League. Our culture has lost appreciation for the true aesthetics of cinema, which suffer from competition with inferior forms, television, video games, even comic books themselves, with their two-dimensional limitations. This disaster is compounded by Hollywood's commitment to superhero movies that manipulate the ready-made comic book audience by appealing to its shallowest adolescent instincts. That's, you know... Might be, might be true in those days, even, uh, in, in some ways. And he goes on to shit on Nolan and Marvel movies. He says, Zack Snyder's audacity in creating a comic book movie renaissance, which began with a complex, ambitious Watchmen, has inspired philistine resentment from reviewers and fanboys who don't want cinema. They've been desensitized to the forms of vitality and richness. Like civics, art is no longer being taught in schools. The schoolyard game of lambasting Snyder's magnificent Man of Steel and the even more intricate Batman v Superman <laughs> Dawn of Justice almost directly parallels the unsubtle breakdown of our political process. So wow. <clears throat> people didn't like Batman v Superman Drawing Dawn of Justice because they weren't taught about art in school. And this year's post-election delusional praise for the utterly mediocre Wonder Woman is a symptom of our current political paralysis. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> by coordinating DC Comics superhero characters into the fight against Steppenwolf Snyder attempts to extend his saga from Dawn of Justice studio interference and personal tragedy have prevented Snyder from completing his vision on a scale commensurate with the ever astonishing Watchmen but as Aquaman, The Flash, Cyborg and Wonder Woman join Batman in the most intense yet fight for human life what remains of Snyder's handiwork is still a triumph his imagery is classical, mythic and erotic 
whereas the males and females in the Avengers were kitsch, and Nolan's Batman films were decidedly asexual. Snyder's sensuality recalls Joseph von Sternberg, whose great films were also misunderstood as camp, even though they contained the essence of cinema as imaginative, photographed experience. That's, what does that mean? Um... After Marvel has cheapened our pop dreams, Snyder enriches them. From Steppenwolf's towering horned malevolence to the Diluvian sequence that introduces Momoa's voluptuous Aquaman, Snyder uses the superhero form voluptuous. to... Voluptuous. <laughs> he is, isn't he? To be fair, he is pretty voluptuous. Ooh, He's curvy. My man. My man. Ooh, all right. <laughs> my booyah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Snyder uses the superhero form to evoke our culturally established dreams, myths, and hope against all unrelenting studio and media efforts to arrest cinema as juvenile pastime. Snyder exalts in its adult spirituality, sensuality, and kinetic intensity. He urges that we keep cinema moving. Wow. Wow. Quite uh, a spectacular We can only dream defense. of being articulate. Yeah, I mean, he's a, you know, let's be honest. He's 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 got a lot of words at his disposal, doesn't he? He's got big vocabulary. Big he's words. Absolutely not afraid to use man, it. Big man, big words. And he's seen a lot of films. I, I haven't seen any of the works of Joseph von Sternberg, who, who he cites there. Perhaps once I've seen them, I recognise the the eroticism and oh sensuality God, and pure Sternberg cinema of Snyder. Like, we've really got fucking ninety nine Takeshi Miku movies to work through here. <laughs> some Sternberg films as well. When will, when will they rest? Well, wouldn't it be cool if we watched them and then we suddenly became like converts to Snyder and we were like, you know what, his movies are fucking yeah. incredible. Actually, Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice is like one of the best films of all time. I just need to see. I just need to see Sucker Punch and then I'll be um up to date on my Snyder's. You should watch Sucker Punch, man. I think we should talk about it. It's uh, it's really funny that he lambasts like um superhero movies as juvenile when like every one of Snyder's films seems like designed for like a thirteen year old boy <laughs> to have as a poster on his wall. And Sucker Punch is like the ultimate example of that. It's like cool. it's like a cross between like a pillow fight and the cover of like a fantasy magazine from about like nineteen ninety five. Can't wait to watch it. Um all right. That's it. That's giving it. giving you your white for the week. You've, you've had that. Um and next week. What are we uh, gonna talk about next week, Danny? The darkest hour. Oh yeah, because you're seeing it with your dear mother, Enos. My dear mama wants to see it. And I said, mama, it looks like shit, but I'll take it as see Mom. it. Mama. Mm, looks awful, my mama. Mother, you fool. You fool, you mother. docile mm. clod. I'll, <laughs> I'll indulge your whims once again. Very well, mother. Very well, so mother. we go. Um, and I don't know what I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch something else. We'll see see what's going on. And, yeah, see you next time. Up your Up yours. Up, up, up your bum. bum. Up your bum. Up your bum. Let's do bum. it. <laughs> The way you're doing it, so yes, sir. (laughs) But if if you turn it around, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Would like millions of people to take it the wrong way.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.